Our scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. This is God's word. For the past month, we've been going into a new series, and uh, the series is about what does it mean to be a Christian. And really what we're learning is that being a Christian has many dimensions. But one thing is absolutely central, and it's not what most people think. It goes above any teaching It goes above any denomination. It goes above any of our political views. Anything that you do, a Christian's view of Jesus Christ is really going to shape everything in his life. Who is Jesus Christ? And what Jesus Christ says here in this text is that he is the way and the truth and the life. That's a simple claim, but it's a very remarkable claim. And so there are three points today, three claims. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Jesus gives us access to a real home, and uh, he gives us a true center, and he gives us real worth. A real home, real center, and real worth. First, we're going to look at Jesus Christ is the way. He he gives us access to a true home. In John John chapter 13, this is the previous chapter, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him, and that he would suffer at the hands of those who will betray him. Now, if you're a disciple, what does that mean? suffering. It means there will be trouble. And still in verse 1, Jesus says, do not be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In other words, don't be anxious. He says, don't be anxious. Do not worry about what will happen to you in the end. Yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you will suffer. But do not worry. I am all powerful, but I'm about to become weak. That's how God will redeem the world. And if God's going to redeem the world through my suffering, through my shame, through my death, you're going to suffer as well. But don't worry. Do not be troubled. That's what he says. Now, why are the disciples troubled? It's because they have potential. It's because they have options. 
It's because they have freedom. They have potential and options and freedom, and they're about to lose it all. It's all about to come to an end because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And this is real suffering. When things that we rest in are tested to their very core, are tested to their foundations, real suffering is like an earthquake in the soul, a lifequake. It shakes the very foundations of everything that you trust, of everything that you call home. Jesus says, trust God, trust also in me. In other words, what he's saying is, you're worried about your home, you're worried about a resting place, I am your resting place. What is a home? A home is a place where you're white, you're comfortable. Home is a place where you can let your hair down. Home is a place where you're going to find acceptance and privacy and security and shelter. Home is a place where everybody knows you, everybody knows you at your worst, and yet you're totally accepted. The disciples, they're troubled. Their souls are quaking. And Jesus, what does he answer? He says he offers them and he offers us the promise of a home. Verses 2 and 3, he says, do not worry. You have a real foundation. Even though the entire world is falling apart here, you are known. You are home. Verse 4, he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, disciple Thomas, he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now think about this. In most of the cases throughout the Gospels, the disciples are always acting as if they know. Jesus says something, they always act like they're no, they know, and Jesus responds, he says, you do not know what you're saying. You do not know what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. And then he teaches them. But in this case, Jesus says, you know. He says, you know the place where I'm going. And it's the disciple who responds. He says, Lord, we don't know. Know what? What is it that they don't know? Jesus is saying here, everyone has a longing. Everyone has a longing for that place, a place where they can rest, a place where they are safe. Everyone has a longing for that, where you belong. You know the way, Jesus says. You know. You've been searching. You've been longing for this. You've been longing for a way to a place that you call home. And I am telling you, I am that way. How do we know this? How do we know that we've been searching for this? If you look in Genesis chapter 1, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the first book of the Bible, you have this garden. That garden was a place of safety. That garden was our home. That garden was the ultimate depiction, a representation of all that is secure. There we had life. There we had love. There we had meaning. There we have an identity. This world, that world in particular, is perfect because God was always walking with man. God was with man. He walked with man. Perfect submission, as the hymn goes, perfect submission. All is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Remember that hymn? That was the garden. But when we chose to sin against God, when we chose to rebel against God, when we chose to leave the security of being in God's presence, what happened? We lost our security. We lost our security. And as a result, a deep insecurity set into our lives. When we chose to leave God's presence, leave the life of being in God's presence, we lost our lives. And as a result, we lost our identity. We lost our sense of worth. And God drove us out of the garden. We were driven out of the garden. And God placed a flaming sword, it says, at the entrance of the garden to guard the way. In other words, he restricted us from access. We've lost access. 
Ever since the Garden of Eden, there's been this sword, the curse. And we've been dying to try to enter back into the garden on our own. We've been looking for security on our own. We've been looking for worth on our own. We've been looking for a defense on our own. We've been looking for safety on our own. And everything that we do, Scripture teaches that everything we do is really just a building up of something to build up that security in our lives. In other words, we're homeless. We've been displaced. We long for this home. We need this home. It's why the ancients, they've been seeking a promised land. All throughout the Old Testament, they've been defending, seeking, looking for this promised land. It's why they needed the temple. It's why King David, if you read in 2 Samuel, King David, when the Ark of the Covenant, which was really a representation of God's presence, was coming and being brought up to Jerusalem, David, pretty much stripped of his clothes, was dancing shamelessly. Shamelessly as this Ark was being brought back to Jerusalem. Why? It was before the days of the temple. That ark represented the presence of God. God was drawing near, and David was overjoyed. Now, David, this is the city of God. I am at peace. It is the shalom, and that's why the name is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. What this passage teaches us is that we are homeless, that we're displaced. What is suffering? Real suffering teaches us that whatever it is that you're placing your life Whatever it is that you are finding as your security, it's never going to last. It's never going to, you're never going to be able to rest there. First Peter, the Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers of this world. He's saying right now you are a foreigner at your best with all of your status and education and pedigree and your wealth, everything that you've accumulated, you are displaced. You are an alien. You are a stranger. You're, you're, kind of, you're displaced. You're homeless. You're like a resident alien. You know what a resident alien is? A resident alien is someone who has all the rights of the country that they're residing in. They're residing in one country, but they're not citizens of that country. They have all the rights, well, most rights and most privileges of being a citizen there, but their home is somewhere else. They may enjoy some things about being here, but they, and they may still uphold the, the laws of living in this country, but you don't adopt everything about being here. In other words, you may experience blessings in your life, but they're not ultimate. You may experience, experience good things, and you say, yes, these things are good, but it'll never be home. It'll never be home. When you go away to college, it's kind of like that. You know, in college, there's a kitchen. In college, you have an apartment. In college, you have a bed. Most people have a bed, right? In college, I hope so, right? In college, you have a refrigerator. In college, you can buy groceries. But when you cook, sometimes the food is good. But it'll never be home. You say, oh, I long to be home to eat my mother's cooking. You sleep on a bed, and you may call that bed home for the time being, but nothing, nothing ever feels like what? Being in, in the safety and the security of home. But we don't believe that. You know, we don't believe that at all, that our struggles are a reminder that we're not home. We don't really believe that. What we do is the moment we're unhappy, what do we do? We blame other things. We say, it must be my job because I'm, un I'm unhappy in my job. It must be my family because is, my family is the source of all of my problems. It must be him or it must be her. And so what we do is we look to get a new job. 
We look to get new friends. We look to get a new girlfriend or a new boyfriend. We even look to find new homes. That's what we do. There's a, uh, in 2002, the producer, uh, famous producer of the PBS documentary, John DeGraff, in partnership with a couple academic scholars, he wrote a book. It's pretty much a seminal piece of literature. He wrote a book based on one of his own PBS productions. It was called Affluenza. You might have heard of it, Affluenza, the all-consuming epidemic. And here's how he defines affluenza. He says, it's a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste, resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. And here are the impacts, he says. Increasing isolation, declining social capital, and a lack of a sense of place. We were once a nation of joiners. We had a community. Now we're a nation of loners. In other words, what John DeGraff is saying is that we're losing a sense of place. We're losing a sense of place. Even though all of our pursuits is to find a sense of place, we're losing a sense of place. It's another way of saying the reason why we're greedy, the reason why we're always so needy relationally, the reason why we're proud and we have to be strong and our egos are big, the reason why what we have will never satisfy us and never enough is because we're homeless. And we live at the core, our souls are homeless. St. Augustine says, my soul will never find its rest until it finds its rest in thee. Our souls are homeless, and so we can't rest. Look at Jesus Christ in this passage. He says, you have a home. You have a place. You can rest your head here. That's what he says. He says, the world right now is not the real reality, and so you're going to suffer. But he says, do not worry. In me, you have a home. Think about this. Only Jesus Christ has the authority to say that. Only Jesus Christ has the power to be able to promise something like this. And only he has the wisdom to be able to say, do not worry about it. He has the authority and the power, and as a result, he has the wisdom to say, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In me, you have a home. In me, you have a way. In me, you have a place. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. You have two criminals that are crucified beside him. And one of them in particular realizes who he is. And so what he, he has a very, very simple request, a plead. He says, will you remember me? And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, I don't have the power, you know, you got to get some citizenship papers? That's not what he says. He says, today, he says, today, there is no delay. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You are with him. In Jesus, you are remembered. In Jesus, your darkest, in your darkest moment, in the darkest moment of your humiliation, in the darkest moment of your death, in the darkest moment of your brokenness, he promises that you can be with him. Only Jesus can promise that. In other, on one hand, heaven is a concrete place. That's what he's saying. Heaven is a concrete place. Jesus speaks of it. He says, today you will be with me. He speaks of an actual place. But John 14 teaches us that it's more than just a concept. It's more than just a philosophy. It's an actual place. It's a physical place. We're going to have bodies. We're going to have bodies in heaven. We're going to touch. We're going to eat. We're going to be with the Father. We're going to call him Father. We're going to be with the Father. We're going to be with God. But in verses 6 to 7, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. What that means is in Christ, you have access, the ultimate access. The reason why we want to get wealthy is because then we have social capital, because everybody wants to be around wealthy people. You want access. 
He says, in me you have ultimate access. And if you know me, then you know the Father. It means then you will belong. You have a broken family here on earth. You will have a Father that is perfect. Perfect. He will never overwork you. He will never overburden you. He will never be overbearing in your life. You will have a Father. You will belong. You can have soulful rest. Soulful rest. The rest that you've been looking for all your life. A Christian is someone who sees that everything that he's been longing for is embodied in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. In Jesus, God is your Father. In the Muslim faith, there are 400 names for God. In the Muslim Quran, there are 400 names representing God in the Quran. None of them refer to God as Father. Here you have a place The Father looks at you and he says, I am proud of you. The Father looks at us even at our worst and he's able to say, well done. No matter what, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always love you. I am here for you. The problem is, here's the problem. We're still looking for a home. Our souls are so displaced. We're still looking for a home. We're still longing. The the home is speaking to you and saying, I am here and I am present. And we're still looking for a father. We're still looking for a home. Some of us are desperate to get married. Why? Because then I'm home. Then I have a home. So we sacrifice a lot of things. We sacrifice our wealth. We sacrifice our purity. And when things don't work out, what happens? You feel homeless. You feel broken and you're homeless. It's very, very common to find security in your salary. It makes sense to find security in your salary or in your work. What are you saying? If your salary... If your job, if your status, if I have these things, yes, then I will be comfortable with myself. What you're saying is, then I can let my hair down. Then I, I found my potential. I found my home. But then if you lose your job, if the sum of your worth is a salary, and if you lose your job, then you lose your salary, what happens? You're going to feel displaced. You're going to feel like you don't fit in. You're going to feel homeless. T.S. Eliot, great poet who happens to be a Christian, he says, we are hollow men. We are stuffed men. We stuff ourselves to stuff our egos, and yet we are so hollow. We are so empty. Jesus Christ says, I am your home. I am the way. Second point, he says, I am the truth. What that means is that Jesus Christ is the center of our relationship with the Father. Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough. That will be sufficient. In other words, show us real reality. We want to see God. If we can just see God, then we know all of this is real. We see real reality. We then know that we have spiritual truth, and then we will believe. He wanted assurance. Philip, very, very simple, very, very simple request. We want assurance. He's saying, if I see the Father, if we see the Father, then we know that everything is real. Everything that you promised about a home, everything is real. Not too far from Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham, Genesis 15? God makes promises, a covenantal promise with Abraham. And Abraham says, Lord, how can I know this? How will you show me? How can I know all this is true? And so what God does is he makes a covenant with Abram. And he reveals himself. He comes in a blazing torch, a furnace and a torch. He comes and he blazes through. He says, don't you know me? Don't you know me? Jesus Christ says, don't you know me? So when Jesus says, you see me, 
If you see me, you see the Father. What he's saying is, Philip, I am that blazing torch. I am that smoking fire pot. You know me. Don't you know me? What does this tell you? Philip is a disciple. But he still didn't really know who Jesus was. What that means is that it is possible to have grown up in the church and not know the center of the church. What that means is it's possible to be hanging with people who know Jesus all your life perhaps and still not know the heart of who Jesus Christ is. It's possible to know many, many people in your community groups, to be walking with them, to be praying for them, to be praying with them, to be looking into Scripture, to be reading books together about the Christian faith, and yet still not know or not have the Christian faith. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's possible to acknowledge Jesus Christ. It's possible to acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord, and yet still miss what it actually means to know that He is Savior and He is Lord. It's one thing to know somebody. You can know somebody in a lot of ways. You can gain knowledge through meetings, through, uh, through social gatherings, through talking with them, through dialogue. You can do this for years. You can learn about people through, for years. With com- combine your meetings with these people with a, a combination of hearsay and some gossip from other people, and you can pretty much get a sense of how somebody is. Right? You can know somebody okay, at least to the degree that you can know somebody in that way. But you never really get to know somebody until you've established mutual values, until you've established some ground of vision together, some sense of a shared mutual risk, some sense of a shared commitment, then you're able to go deeper into somebody's life. In fact, that's the bridge between a casual relationship and a personal relationship because if you let them in, as you let them in deeper, through mutual values and mutual vision and mutual risk and mutual commitment, as you let them in, your love for those people starts to grow. The church, they say, D.A. Carson, famous theologian, he says the church is, uh, consists of natural enemies. In other words, there is no way that you would ever assemble this group of people on your own, by your own will. There's not a single person here who would choose to come here and say, yes, this is the body of people that I always wanted to get to know. You would never do that because our natural tendency is to get together with people who are just like us. That's our natural tendency. It is only by faith through the gospel that you come together and share mutual values, come to a mutual value, come to a mutual vision, And through that vision and value, you start to share mutual risk, mutual commitment. And as you let them into your life, and as they let you into their lives, there's this mutual love that starts to develop. And if that's the way with finite beings, imagine how much more you can infinitely know God as an infinite being. That means you can really know him. That means you can, the deeper you go, the more there is to know. The deeper you know one person, is more, the more there is to know about that person. There is so much more to know about the Lord. You can really know God. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the center of that truth. In fact, you can't even know the Father except through me. That means the deeper you know me, the deeper you know the Father, and that is infinitely knowable. That is an amazing thing. That's what he's saying. I am the center of that. If you really knew me, you can infinitely come to know the Father. 
if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. That means you will have truth. That means you will have reality, real reality. In other words, knowing Jesus draws us to the center of knowing God. And knowing God, that is the answer to our deepest questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I worth? What is my value here? What is my meaning and my purpose? Having real answers, you can have real answers to those questions. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the answer. You can have real answers to those questions, and that will give you a ground that you can stand on. That will give you a foundation that you can rest in. That will give you a center. That will give you power. Now think about this. If this claim is true, then why doesn't everybody just flock towards Jesus? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. It's not because Jesus is impersonal. It's because he's too personal. It scares us away. It's, he's too personal. Jesus Christ doesn't just want you to follow him. He doesn't want you to just know about him. He doesn't want you to, I'm going to say it in more colloquial terms, he doesn't want you to just hang out with him. He doesn't want you to just date him. When you date somebody, the essence of dating is you only let them know what you want them to know. You'll never truly know until there is a covenantal commitment where you are saying, I'm putting all my risk, all my risk financially, socially, family-wise, you're putting it all on the table. And when you are willing to risk all of that, and then you risk your body for that, and you're bound in a promise, he says, then you really know what this person, it's kind, of, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Then you know what they're really about. Modern, uh, modern theology of relationships and friendships are, I'm going to learn everything about this person first before I really commit to them. And covenantal relationships work very differently. You're going to commit and you're going to risk first. You're going to put it all on the line. And it's done ceremoniously in front of witnesses. That's why we get married. And he says, when you do that, what you're saying is, I'm putting my life on the line and I'm making that commitment up front before I see everything that is ugly about you. That's an amazing thing. Jesus Christ doesn't want to just date you. He says, I'm your bridegroom. You are my bride. That's personal. That's very personal. He says, I don't want you to just sit and have a meal with me. I am your bread of life. You have to take me in and digest me and consume me and that part of me will nourish every part of your soul and being up until it affects everything on the outside. Do you see what he's saying here? He wants to be intimate with you. Some of us too intimate. He's saying, I am the source of your life. I am the source of your worth. Oh, that means you're going to risk things. That means you're going to be challenged. That means you're going to change. When you weigh it out like that, it's going to, you make a cost-benefit analysis and it doesn't add up. It never adds up on the outside. We don't naturally ever want that. It's too much risk. We think it's going to reduce our options and potential and freedom and joy and worth when really it's the source of our options and potential and joy and freedom and worth. Do you see that? Relationships by nature change you. Being a Christian is going to change your goals. It's going to change your desires. It's going to change your affections. It's going to change your politics. It's going to challenge everything that you hold at the center of your being, your soul, what you call home. And it's going to change your values and develop real values there, values that you're willing to die for, you see. In fact, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, you are so different, they call it the new birth. It's being born again. 
Do you see that? Jesus says, I am a new center. I am real reality. I am the truth. That's what he says. Lastly, he says, I am the life. I am the way. I am the way to the Father. I am your home. I am the center of everything that you are. I will shape and change everything that you believe. I am the way. Lastly, he says, I am the life. Verse 7, Jesus says, from now on, you do know. You do know. And you've seen. That's remarkable. You know why? Because anyone in the Old Testament, whoever saw God, would perish. They would perish. It's why God would veil himself in a fire. It's why God would veil himself in a radiant cloud. It's why he would sometimes just speak. Because he would appear before the people, they would be consumed. It's why he would veil himself behind these thick curtains in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And so Abram and Moses, they only saw a glimpse of God. And yet he was still their home. They only saw a glimpse. David, who saw only a representation of God, and yet he called it home. And yet, what he's saying is, you have seen God. You have seen me face to face and you live, and therefore I am your life. Now you will really live. He says, from now on, you do know him, and it will give you life. You have life. The word life that he uses is a very particular word in the Greek. You can't overlook it. It's the word zoe. It's different from the typical word for life that's often used in the New Testament. The typical word for the word life in the New Testament is the word bios. Science majors, you understand where the word bios leads to, the word biology. It means it suggests everything, all the means to sustain natural life, to sustain sustain the natural order. But here, Jesus doesn't use the word bios. He's not saying uh, he is, but he's not saying here that he is, oh, what is needed to sustain the natural order of things, the natural life, even though he is. He says, I am your Zoe life. He's saying, I am your worth. Everything that you live for, I am the embodiment of it. You want love, I am love. You want richness, I am the ultimate richness. You want joy, I am the source of joy. That's what he's saying. I am fullness, I am meaning, I am purpose, I am your life. Jesus is saying, stop looking elsewhere for these things. You're going to come up empty. You will never be full if you, look up, if you look for these things elsewhere. I will make you new. I will renew your life in such a way that you will feel like a new person. You will be a new person, inside out. Jesus Christ will take you as you are, broken and sinful. Sometimes there are days, let's admit it, sometimes there are days when we just feel ugly. Maybe because of our sin, or maybe because we just hate our bodies, either on the inside or on the outside. We just are broken and lost, and we just feel ugly and homeless, and we're suffering. It, makes, it gives us suffering on the inside and out. And what Jesus is saying is, I will take you as you are, and I will make you new from the inside and out in a way that all the sufferings will make sense. It will make all the suffering worth it because the joy that is coming, the coming joy will take you through your brokenness, in your brokenness, and subsume all that you are, all the pain, all the brokenness, and out comes, out will birth a newness and a joy. That is what is coming. A joy that comes through suffering. You know why you need that? Think about this. A heaven without suffering on earth will not be heaven. It will not be complete. Think about this. Remember, the whole premise is disciples are troubled. And Jesus says, don't be troubled. Heaven without suffering will not be complete. You know why? Because without suffering, 
you will not have courage in heaven. Without suffering, you will not have bravery in heaven. Without suffering, you will not have redemption in heaven. You see that? Do you understand that? So the sufferings, and some of us have gone through immense suffering. I'm not here to denigrate the suffering that some of us have experienced. I've experienced immense suffering in my life. I am experiencing immense suffering in my life. Jesus Christ will work through the suffering in a way that, you know, Jesus, when he showed up, he still had scars. Your suffering, he will make sense out of it. You may not understand it today. Even if you, it's just incomprehensible, you may not even understand it today. But the coming joy will assume your suffering and birth you into a joy that you can't imagine today as well. Do you understand? Do you see that? There's a great movie, one of my favorite movies, Dead Poets Society. It's about a poetry professor. It, was, it came out in the 80s. I'm an 80s child. It came out in the 80s. If you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, it stands the test of time. Go and see it, okay? Homework for you, class. Go and see it. There's a poetry professor played by Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams. Um, he's at a prestigious uh, all-boys school. And it's a boarding school. These children are, it's in the, in the mid-1900s. They are pressed by their parents who want them to study hard and make a name for the family because that, in those days, the family, your family name and everything. And so they were pressed, almost squashed by their parents to make a name for themselves because they have to be a doctor. They have to be a lawyer. They have to become bankers. And here's this poetry professor teaching these kids this meaninglessness of poetry, this meaningless poetry class for them, this gut course that they're taking. And this is what he says. He says, the human race is filled with passion. And medicine and law and business and engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life, bios. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for, Zoe. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, Oh, the, of the questions of these recurring. And he goes on and he recites the poem. It's printed in the front cover of your bulletin. And he says, and the answer, he says, Oh, me, oh, life. That's the question. And this is the question that will plague me all my life. What is life? And the answer, that you are here and that life exists, an identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman great poet, famous poet, he asks, what's the purpose of me being here? Oh me, oh life, what's my purpose? It's the endless question. It's the endless longing. The endless search for a home. An answer to the question of who am I? And the answer, life exists. There is something out there called Zoe. There is a Zoe life out there and it's unraveling and it's unfolding like a play in many acts. And you are a part of that play. Your life can find meaning. And Jesus Christ says, you can search endlessly and it will be, and endlessly goes on. Walt Whitman says, it's the trains that continue. All the different endless things that we see in life, never finding an answer. That train never comes home to, uh, to dock. He says, I will seek this for the rest of my life. Jesus Christ says, I am your meaning. I am your purpose. I am your potential. I am your freedom. I am your beauty. I am your love. Experiencing love. That entrance into the heart. 
that entrance into the heart that intensifies into a deeper desire to know that person. It's an endless cycle because the more you love somebody, the more you're intent, the intensity of that love, and as that intensity grows, the desire to know that person grows, and what happens is inherently when you love somebody, you want to sacrifice for them. Parents, you all understand what that means, to love something that you just met, a child, right? A baby, an infant that you've just started to get to know. It's got no personality. It's got no real quirks yet. It's like any other baby countlessly that has been born on this earth. And yet when you meet your child and you start to become intimate with that child from day one, what happens? Your love starts to grow. And as your love, as you know the little quirks of your child, as you know that person that you're in love with, what happens? Your love for them deepens, and as your love for them deepens, your sacrifice deepens. And as your sacrifice deepens, your commitment deepens. The risks deepen. And yet, it's all worth it for a little child. How can you quantify that? How can you do a CBA? How can you do a cost-benefit analysis on that? You will always come out lost at a loss. Do you understand that? You will always come at a loss, and that's love. That great, intense desire to know somebody. And as you know them, and as you get to know them deeper, your sacrifice grows for them. Your sacrifice, your heart, your service. Jesus Christ says, I am your home. I am your center, your truth. He says, I will sacrifice for you. I am your life. I will prolong you and advance you out of my own sacrifice. I will prolong you and help you to thrive, and I will serve you. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have a home. But in Matthew chapter 8, he says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, to lay his head. In other words, Jesus Christ became homeless out of his sacrifice and I have his serving to build a home for you. And he wasn't just referring to a physical place. On the cross, Jesus finally finds the place where he will rest his head. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus Christ was cast out. He was forsaken. He says, I've been forsaken. I've been cast out. I've been cosmically homeless. I've become homeless for you, for me. He said, I'm forsaken. What that means is I'm homeless. I'm lost. I've lost my way. I have no way. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus does not refer to God as his father. You know what that means? I've lost my father so that you could have a father. I've been disowned. Why? First Peter, chapter 2, Peter says, you are a people belonging to God. Do you see that? Jesus Christ lost his father so that we would have a father. Jesus Christ was disowned, and so he lost his center. When he said, my God, my God, I've lost my God. My God has forsaken me. He's lost the truth, the center. You know me, you know the father? I've lost the father. That means I've lost the center. I've lost my foundation. Everything that I've built out, the center of my worship, everything that I've poured my life, my service, my sacrifice, my center, my worship, my worth, has been sacrificed and he's left me. He's forsaken me. Do you see that? Why? Why did he do that? 
the father lost a son as well. It wasn't just the son that lost the father. The father on the cross, if the son lost the father, the father lost his son. The Trinity was literally ripped apart on the cross and he gives up the spirit and he lost his life. On the cross, Jesus lost his way. He lost his truth. He lost his life. Why? Remember that flaming sword at the Garden of Eden? The only way you could enter through is to pass through the sword. It means you're going to be consumed, right? The sword will come down. The only way that we could ever return home is if someone goes through that sword. That sword would have to consume. That sword represented the curse on the cross. The sword fell on Christ. He suffered the curse. The whole wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ, and he was alone. All through John chapter 14, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And you, I am in the Father and he is in me. And yet that was torn apart and he says, I am with you, I am with you. Don't be troubled, trust in me. And yet he was consumed alone on the cross. No way, forsaken by his center. And it cost him his life and his identity and his status, everything. And he did it. Why? Do you know that in Isaiah 53, he said his soul was satisfied? Do you know that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 said it was for his joy? That means that on the cross, it wasn't like he was saying, oh, look at me, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. That's not what he was doing on the cross. He was glad on the cross to die for his people so that we could have access. The sword came, on down, came down on Christ and he lost access to the Father so that we could have ultimate access. I mean, am I belaboring this point? Jesus Christ lost his home so that we would have a fo- home? Jesus Christ lost his Father so that we could have a Father? Jesus Christ lost his center, lost his guide, lost his foundation, lost his truth so that we could have truth? something we can stand on that will last on through eternity, so a truth that grows truer and truer by the day. Jesus Christ lost his life, lost his identity, lost his meaning, lost his status. Why? So you can have identity. You can have meaning. You can have status. You know, suffering is that cosmic quaking of the soul, we said. It shakes the foundations and it reveals who we really are. That is what your suffering is intended to do. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. There was an earthquake. There was a physical earthquake on the cross. The skies grew dark. There was a storm on the cross. And yet, what do you see about Christ? When his soul was quaking, when his life was quaking all around him, his world was literally falling apart and caving in, he says, my God, my God. He was still calling God his God. And do you know he was reciting Psalm 22? He was still worshiping on the cross. Even though the Father had abandoned him, he had not abandoned. He had held on. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the, look at the commitment of Christ. Look at the compassion for our sakes. Do you see that? Do you see that? Look at the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's why we can rest in him. When he says, trust me, we can trust him. Do you see that? We can call him our home. It's why he can be our center. It's why he can be our truth. It's why we can place all of our worth in him. Do you see that? 
Philip says, show us the Father. That's going to be enough for us. Other promises of life, other things that we pursue for our way or for our truth or for our life, you think it's going to increase your potential and your meaning and your worth. And it's only going to lead to a decrease in your potential and your meaning and your worth. Do you see that? Only Jesus. Jesus is the only way and truth and life and worth. He's the only one, even in suffering, that leads you to a dynamic life, a big life, because he's going to make you more like Jesus. How does that work? I'm going to, give you, I'm going to explain to you how it works. Do you feel betrayed in your life? Jesus Christ was betrayed. Now, what that doesn't mean is that anybody who's ever been betrayed, ah, I must be being just like Jesus. On one hand, you are. You are actually in that moment able to connect with Jesus better than anybody else if you've been betrayed ever in your life. But to the degree that you trust that Jesus is your way and truth and your life, then you can respond the way Jesus responded. And how did he respond? He was broken, and yet he was poised. Do you see that? Some of us, were in a lot of pain, either emotionally or physically, or maybe we just hate our bodies. Jesus' body on the cross failed him. Do you see that? Then you can respond as Jesus responded. He cried out. That means it's okay to cry. It's okay to lament. He cried out, and yet he still trusted God. Do you see that? One day you will be renewed. In Revelation 21, he says, Behold, I am making all things New. He doesn't say, I'm going to make all new things. He's not going to erase us, annihilate us, and replace us. He says, through your brokenness, the joy is coming. And that's why you're feeling the pains of childbirth right now. But the joy is coming. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ cried out, and yet he still trusted God. He still trusted Scripture. He was quoting Scripture on the cross even after he was forsaken. The remaining six or seven verses, verses 9 to 15, I'm just going to summarize, okay? We'll get to that another day, right? It teaches that when Jesus comes into your life, not only are you going to respond the way Jesus responded, you're going to do as Jesus did because he, the gospel has come in. You see the Father. You see the hope. You see everything. And it is not only a promise, it is real reality. You have put on a different lens to see the world. And you see even through the brokenness what God is doing. And you see even through your sin and through your brokenness what God has done in Christ. And when you trust that, you'll be radically transformed by Christ to do what he does. Because the Spirit resides in you. Jesus has made his home in you. And it's going to change your life. He's going to rest in you. He's going to use you. He's going to work redemption in you, even in your suffering, not to destroy you. You can say, you can hurt me, betray me, destroy me. You will only complete me. Do you trust that, church? Do you believe that? You can rest in it. Let it be your foundation. Let's pray.